Well, thank you for joining us at this webinar today. Um, as you can tell, it's sponsored by our friends at uh, EXL. Turning data into dollars is the conversation that we uh, have today. Thank you for joining us. Um, joining us in the uh, the session as panelists today, we have the uh, the irascible Jim Maroos. Um, Jim is the CEO of the Digital Banking Report. He's also the host of Banking Transformed and uh, co-publisher of the financial brand. I'm sure he needs no introduction as he's uh, uh, very well known to the crowd that's joining us today. We also have joining us Lindsay Ogan, uh, Chief Marketing Officer for Stride Bank. Corey LeBlanc, who's the co-founder and the COO and CTO of Locality Bank, a new uh, challenger in the space. Becky Reed, Chief Operating Officer at Bank Social and CEO and founder of Brass. Is that how you say it, Becky? Brass it is. Brass it is. And uh, of course, joining us from EXL is Vika Sharma. He's the Senior VP at EXL. So thank you all for joining it. Now, you know, we're going to be talking about d data as a strategic asset today. And so, um, you know, when, when we talk about data as a strategic asset, it may sound fairly, um, you know, uh, innocuous, like this is talked about a lot, but, you know, I, I don't think we realize necessarily the extent to which the amount of data that we have to use in decision-making today has completely changed just over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Um, the ability to extract you know, uh, data, minute data on behavioral elements of customer behavior, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to financial behavior and so forth, has never been, um, you know, we've never had the ability we have today. I saw some great numbers around this uh, recently is that latest estimates are that Every day, 330 million terabytes of data are created every day. That account accounts to 120 zettabytes per year, um, which is, you know, in, in any year today, we produce more data than historically was produced in uh, certainly in our lifetimes, if not uh, uh, much greater. If you take all of the books of the world, about 175 million books, that equates to 175 terabytes of storage to store all the books that have ever been written throughout human history. And we're talking about 20 million times that every day in terms of the amount of data that is created. So that's why we're having this conversation. How do we take all of that incredible amounts of data and turn that into economic advantage for our community banks and credit unions? So thank you for joining us today. Um, we will be happy to take your questions during the presentation. You don't need to wait till the end. If you've got a question for a panelist in spe specifically, please uh, do that in the Q&A, direct it to the, that panelist uh, um, directly. But I thought uh, what we could do to start off uh, the discussion, um, you know, when we when we talk about digitization of credit assets and deposits, it's obviously even accelerated since the pandemic at an unprecedented pace. Community financial institutions, big and small, find themselves now having to compete with larger banks and fintechs as consumers evaluate and choose the best options or offers available to them. 
And one of the key impacts has been increased usage of data to drive decisioning at uh, community FIs. Um, so we want to talk about how community banks and credit unions are leveraging data. That's why we've created the panel we have, um, specifically around top line and bottom line growth, and also discuss how data-driven decisioning is creating these extraordinary opportunities for uh, a value for customers across the customer or member lifestyle. Um, you know, what's the maturity of uh, the current processes that are there, the challenges, and and talk about the road ahead and how the team that's on today are dealing with this. But I want to start with uh, Jim first. Jim, um, you're w widely considered one of the uh, foremost experts and influences in retail banking in the United States. So we're grateful to have you on. But, um, you know, you are, you're also the creator of the Digital Banking Report. And you're obviously working on a lot of data-driven stuff uh, in, in in all aspects of your career. So how, you know, what is the state of play in respect to, um, you know, the larger banks uh, in this space versus the community banks and credit unions in terms of what the data is telling you about the activity in the industry itself? Thanks, Brad. I appreciate being on the webinar today. You know, it's interesting. We've just completed three brand new studies. One is on financial marketing and the use of data towards driving financial engagement. The other one is on digital banking maturity, which is a broader perspective beyond the data aspect. And the third one is um, financial trends and predictions and priorities. And it's interesting because they all align really well with each other as to where the financial services industry is today with respect to collecting and leveraging data. Um, that is no, you know, stranger to the financial services industry. I've been in banking over 40 years and data was important then, but it's how we're using data that has changed so much. And, you know, I, I use a comment a lot of times when I'm presenting that, uh, you know, we've got to move from using data for great reports to moving them to being extraordinary experiences. And I, I think the challenge right now is that financial institutions still are collecting a lot of data and insights. They're even building great tools to know who their customers are. The biggest challenge is actually deploying solutions against that knowledge. And it doesn't matter what size organization. We, we, we're seeing in our most recent studies, we found that organizations today, less than 30% have the ability to do an action against a data point. So in other words, what we're talking about is a, a trigger. Um, in fact, many financial institutions still aren't collecting the data that can drive triggers. I, I use in examples quite a bit that, that you know, whenever you test drive an auto, you're about to buy, buy an auto, you test drive an auto, you, you get a credit bureau run against you, but not a, a full credit bureau, but you get a ping that basically says you're at a car dealership. The number of financial institutions that use that type of data to actually engage with a customer around the possibility of maybe getting a discounted loan rate or a, a car loan rate of any sort is minimal. And, and, it, and it's frightening to a degree because we know the data is out there. We know the power of data. There's no lack of knowledge as to how important it is. But when we do analysis around what's the importance, the importance is the highest level of any importance they have in the industry right now. When we talk about the investment against that, against data and insights and, and processing data, it is very low. What's even more disturbing is on a self-analytical basis, financial institutions now, over 60% of financial institutions 
rate themselves as not adept at leveraging data for engagement. So, you know, while we talk about it a lot, the deployment about this across all asset categories, by the way, is really suffering. And what is interesting, to your point, Brett, around, you know, how do the smaller financial institutions compare to the larger? We find that the smallest and largest financial institutions are doing quite well. The largest because they have a lot of money. Interesting. And it's the solution. The smallest because in many cases, the leadership has a commitment to using composable solutions to make an impact and saying we can collect data and make a direct impact on our bottom line, on our marketing efforts, if we leverage it. The middle ground is the part where we really see a challenge in that organizations, partially because they're getting good financial results on a continuous basis, and it's hard to get everybody moving in the same direction, we find there's a gap. So, so this is more the mid-size and regional players. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the good news is there are organizations such as Excel, which provide composable solutions. So if I'm trying to manage data and say, I need to generate more deposits, which a lot of financial institutions are looking for right now, there's data out there that can be helped to generate those solutions on a very direct basis in a way that does not open up the whole issue of too high of rates being paid on the entire database. So, you know, really quickly, this fact is that um, most organizations still find themselves to be not very digitally mature in this area. They know the challenge. It's a matter of putting um, resources toward it. And interestingly, instead of technology being the issue at hand, it's leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Leadership. And, and you often talk about culture as sort yeah. of a key to that. And, and uh, you know, I see it when I go and present to boards of community banks and credit unions, one of the most common responses I have to, you know, sort of presenting the digital journey to people is, oh, I'm so glad I'm retiring next year and I don't have to worry about that. But that's not really a solution to the problem set, but a lot of people are nodding um, from that. So uh, uh, I do, we well, do I, have a, sorry, go ahead, Corey, jump in. No, I, I was going to chime in here real quick. I also think that those institutions, I, I agree culture plays a big factor into this. I, I do agree that they have a lot of things going on, but I also think it's just that they've built all of their data into silos. They've done nothing to consolidate that data into a place where they can actually make anything from it. And so instead of taking the pieces that are probably critical to the business, I think that's where the culture, that's where the leadership problem really kind of sneaks in is that they don't look at that incrementally and start making it the changes to get to that version of ideal data cumulatively uh, through maybe specific focus areas. And so they just kind of kick the can down the road. At least that's what I've seen a lot. And so I know like, you know, just starting a bank recently, that was one of my biggest priorities. My investors, my board, everyone's like, why do we really need this massive data warehouse? We're only going to get a couple of reports out of it to start. And our thing was, no, you start now so that as we continue to build the layers of data, whether it's be through third-party relationships, LOSs, core systems, or just external data that we can pull in that we can learn about our customers or help the loan process, help a deposit opening process without having to ask the customer to provide these things that we can go get, we'll have the foundation to do so. But I think a lot of institutions in that mid-tier, it's also very costly to start doing that. And therefore, yeah. because of their size, that's a that's a complication. You know, I, I, I do wonder whether part of this is also the fact that most of those mid-size, you know, but this is true of the smaller institutions as well, are, are on, um, you know, rented um, tech stacks, you know, um, and that, that does give some restrictions. Vikas, uh, you had a point. 
So I'm just going to, I think, uh, agree with Jim. I think when he mentioned that there's a lot of data available, the trick is how it is getting used. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, we were actually working with one of the community banks and they had this customer relationship going back decades, right? They had a ton of data and they were looking at like, all of this checking account data. Uh, what we were simply able to do was basically start leveraging this uh, and using what we call as a transaction inside solution, right? To see what might be more triggers for us to go and uh, get back to the customer, right? Uh, maybe they have say, a lot of uh, credit card debt, which we can consolidate into an installment loan, or maybe there are other solutions that we can offer by looking at what kind of transactions they are doing. Somebody recently moved house, and they might require a certain kind of solutions, and there are other events which are happening in their life. So all of that becomes quite possible with just simply using, say, checking account data. And then I think that started creating wonders for them because rather than doing cross-sell, which was more a campaign-based, uh, they were able to make it uh, much more closer to real time. Uh, they were able to make it much more hyper-personalized. And then that started um, creating a lot of value for them, creating a much better customer relationship for them. So I agree, Jim. I think the trick okay. is also looking at what are the immediate places where you can start and then and what are the other things that you need to do over long term uh, to make it more successful. Yeah. Uh, coming back to the cultural point, Lindsay, um, you know, you work with a lot of uh, mid-sized organizations. What's the what's the cultural issue you've observed? Yeah, well, I feel personally victimized by Corey's very accurate description of uh, data. Was it intentional? And... <laughs> I love you, <laughs> No, it's it's very true, and and I think you know, and and Jim mentioned this as well that that you at the mid-sized bank, I always say we're kind of victims of our own success, right? Because to be that mid-sized, you at one point did grow um, to some extent. And so there's kind of this legacy mindset where we go, well, this is how I did it when I had to do it last time. And growth looks entirely different. Customer acquisition looks entirely different in this day and age. And so kind of release, releasing that idea that we know how to do this and that we have to go back to first principles uh, all over again and start from square one, that, that can be a big cultural issue. Uh, but I also think... Um, to Jim's point that not only do you have legacy systems, but you have have legacy people, right? And you have people that are in self-preservation mode and they're like, I don't, I, yeah, maybe we need to upset the apple cart, but can you do it after I soft retire from, from my uh, organization? They haven't had a bad year. Yeah. They haven't had a bad year. Absolutely. So Absolutely. And they're making too much money. Absolutely. And so, uh, so I think that, you know, I, I've been a big, preacher and, and proponent of the fact that, you know, it's not evolution versus, versus you know, self-preservation. Uh, evolution is self-preservation. We have to evolve for the banks to survive and uh, for the banks to survive for us to, to continue to work in the workforce at them. But uh, it kind of depends on uh, where you are in the state of your career. But I think those are absolutely uh, things that I've seen throughout my career at various mid-sized banks that, uh, that we have to fight against on, on a cultural basis. You know, you know what's frustrating me, though, Jim? You, you say they haven't had a bad year, right, Lindsay? And I bet you'll shake your head on this one, though. If you look at the data, though, if they actually look at the data year over year, they may not have a bad year, but they're progressively losing business that is critical to the company's growth in the future, and they have zero way of going to get it back. That's the thing yep, that's most absolutely. frustrating to me. They're not they're particularly, not the particularly right with the right. younger, younger customer set. Yeah. Well, not just younger. I mean, they're not managing looking at funds flow. So right. every every month, money gets deposited to their primary bank account relationships. And every month, money flows out of their institution to higher paying organizations or different types of organizations. I do a, a survey of every group I ever present to that says, how many of you have closed a major primary financial relationship in the last five years? 
nobody raised their hand. How many of you have opened a secondary, tertiary financial relationship anywhere else in the last two years? And everybody, everybody. Their hand. Yeah, yeah. there's silent attrition going on that they're not measuring because the old ways of measuring attrition were how many accounts did I lose against how many accounts do I have in my portfolio? They're not losing them. They're just not the relationships anymore. They're an account. But how scary is that though, Jim? If, if, if they're not even seeing the data about what they're losing, that means they're not even looking at the historical uses of data. How are we to start to have the conversation around using predictive modeling right. with yeah. data if they're, they're not, not even looking at... in the rearview mirror even right right yeah now um i do want to get to jim uh jim perry's question uh in a moment as well but uh becky um i'd like to bring you in at this point um you know you, you've been a, a long-time credit union executive so you've been sitting in the boardroom when these these issues have come up you know you're running a, a qso right now um you've been a credit union ceo um you know from from that position of leadership um you know what is what are the conversations like in in the boardroom over this and and what is being missed by these executives right now well, um, Jim spoke about leadership and, and, you know, I can't emphasize enough, um, how leadership actually drives what happens across the organization and what Lindsay mentioned, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, about how some people want to ride out their career into retirement without doing anything hard. No, don't mess up anything. I don't want the board yeah, getting yeah. upset with me. I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to upset anybody. I'm just going to ride off into the sunset, you know, while my organization continues to stay status quo. Now, that is absolutely not something that I uh, ever uh, have done or um, would do. But when you're dealing with a smaller organization that has limited resources and you have a lot of technology options that you can uh, choose and you certainly can't spend money on all of them. Data is one of those things that certainly uh, in the past, um, to Corey's point, has been held hostage to some degree um, by the core providers uh, that, that provide software uh, to credit unions and community banks. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it often makes it cost prohibitive in order to extract that data in order to do uh, anything meaningful with it. Then once you do distract it, extract it. Yes, it's distracting to extract it. Um, the, um, it then, you, you know, what the heck do you do with it? And let's go back to, from a consumer perspective, let's talk about consumers. And, and uh, Brian Claggett, one of our attendees, posted on uh, LinkedIn this morning, which I commented on. Um, and he was talking about an experience he had with his uh, bank, I believe it was his community bank that he'd been a customer of for, for many, many uh, years that had gone through multiple M&A acquisitions and you know, changed brands and so on. Um, today's consumer expects any organization that we do business with to understand us. And we expect the experience to be like Apple. We expect it to be like Amazon. We expect it to be like Netflix. 
right? So those organizations use data to present to me a very customized and specialized experience. And we as consumers, certainly on the lower end of the spectrum as well, I mean younger when I say lower, we expect that our financial institution that has every piece of data that you could possibly imagine under the sun should be able to know when I'm about to leave, right? And they should reach out to me and say, what's happening? What's, why did your direct deposit stop? Why um, are, is your uh, ACH payment going to pay Ford Motor Credit instead of my financial institution? Um, why have you stopped writing so many checks? Why are you not using your debit card as much as, I mean, all this is of pretty this basic data, data, right? Yeah, it is. It's there. But what Brian posted this morning was interesting because the frictionless experience that he had with technology. And again, this organization chose to spend money this way, as opposed to spending money the other way with the predictive analytics and reaching out from a relationship perspective, it was super easy for him to close his account via chat. Okay, done, over, yeah, yeah. five minutes. But to his point, he was like, that was super easy, but you didn't notice all of these other things that could have saved the relationship months or even years ago. And to me, that's an example of competing priorities in an organization and where we spend our technology dollars, which is a leadership issue. Yeah. yeah. No, um, there's a good uh, question from EJ uh, Kritz here. Banks assume a core DDA represents a customer who considers that, that bank to be their primary financial institution. But when uh, we survey banks um, or credit unions, customer base, it tends to be closer to a third of households that actually think the same way. So, I mean, this is, Jim, what you were talking about is that, and Becky, what you were talking about as well, is the data is fairly clear when a customer is not using your bank as the primary financial institution, and yet the responsiveness to that situation appears uh, on the whole fairly poor. Why is that, Jim? Is it that they don't have the systems to pull the data or they're just not someone who's responsible for interpreting that data? Interesting. I'll, I'll go to both Lindsay and Corey's uh, and Becky's comments in that we look at things in the legacy way. I mean, my son, his primary financial relationship is Venmo. He's got a Venmo card. He's got a Venmo interaction of payments. And for more and more younger consumers, the payment function is actually the core relationship, which when you think about it, and I'm, I'm calling payments in a credit or debit scenario, when we think about it, that's still the same as it's always been. It's just that we used to write checks to do those things. We no longer do those in most cases. And, and so what we have, we have a scenario where in some cases now, the primary relationship is where I'm doing the most transactions. For me on the business side is PayPal. My, my business account only sees PayPal inflows and outflows and direct deposits of, of funds that I've earned. That is it. They don't see any interaction on a one-to-one -one basis. That is why PayPal on a regular basis offers me bridge lines of credit that I can get instantly at a decent rate. If I want to go to my primary financial relationship for that same product, 
it would take about 14 days, if I'm lucky, for disbursements because the, the actual application process takes multiple days. It can't be done digitally. The credit adjudication takes more than a week. And then there's even delay in disbursement of funds. By that time, I don't need the money. And yeah, yeah. As, as Becky mentioned, as consumers, just think about everything that happens automatically. You mentioned Netflix. I have Hulu down here. It's a very different relationship with Hulu than with DirecTV, which I have in our place up north, in that Hulu determines what I'm going to probably want to watch next. While DirecTV, I have to push buttons to make sure I record what I want to see. The same thing happens with Amazon, everything else. And a lot of it happens so behind the scenes, we take it for granted. So when the financial institution doesn't realize, as with Brian's example, that he's taking money out, or in my example that I wrote about his, his post, that I had a mortgage that they never offered me a lower rate until I was leaving to go consolidate my lending to someplace else. And yet we all talk a good game about wanting to care about the customer. And yet at the end of the day, we're not using basic data points to move the relation forward. And now it's no longer experiences. It's about engagement. It's about where am I getting the dialogue going? You know, yeah. it's no longer about, it's never a plus, it's no longer a, a two point thing. It's an overarching relation thing, which is really, Corey, I think where your new new company came into existence for was to build well, better engagement. Let's get into that. So doing the transactions. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, locality bank, Corey, um, you know, this is, uh, you've been already quite successful in the South Florida region, you, you, but you had to build this, build this up from, um, you know, the ground up, but what are you doing differently from a traditional community bank when it comes to data? Yeah, so from the data standpoint, right, it, same thing we're doing really on the digital banking side, same thing we're doing on the core banking side, is we're building a foundation to support the future growth of the company. We're investing in the future more than we're looking at the day-to-day, month-by-month cost of things. And we're, we're seeing positive results because I'll take you one layer up even simpler, Jim, in, in data that we're not looking at, right? I was, Cassie just shared a, a Cassie, my wife, for, for anyone who doesn't know, but uh, who's way smarter than me in any of this stuff. Like she teaches me most of the things, but she shares with me this financial brand article this morning. And I was looking at it and I thought it was funny because it shows like 97% maintain a separate business account versus their personal accounts. Great. They should, Right. But what I thought was fascinating in the article is it starts really digging into, you know, how, how many institutions does a customer typically work with? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? But the one that I thought was super fascinating and simple, right, that in what localities very easily looks at and, and markets to and has conversations with both digitally and physically, is it said 56%, uh, only 56% keep an account on their consumer and their business side at the same institution. Yeah, yeah. How insane is that? That's a simple conversation. You have a relationship with this customer in this one segment. How can you not have that conversation about the other, right? And so for us, that's what's critical, right? Is we're looking at how do we utilize not just the data that sits in core. I, I agree with everything that everyone was saying about the you know the legacy cores and all this stuff. I mean, uh, they're, I'm, they're probably not my biggest fan either at this point, uh, but sure, they lock a lot of that stuff in, but there's also a lot of data that we have access to that we just don't use, right? So just right, talk exactly. about commercial onboarding, for example, 
that's something that we're, we're really heavily investing in. We're, we're working on even reinventing that commercial onboarding process from day one. So we've only been in business for two years and we're, we're literally reinventing the entire process to try to improve it. Because what we realize is we made a really simple application. Customers can go put all their information in they can open up a bank account. But what we didn't consider is even though it only takes 10 minutes, the customer may not have all the documents needed. They may not be able to fill out all the information. They may need to pass that application on to somebody else. And so today, about 90 plus percent of the applications that come into locality from the commercial side go through some form of hybrid white glove, which means we are physically having to work with these customers to get some of this information. So what we're looking at doing, right, is taking data from known sources like SunBiz and some of these other registries where we can pull data and some of this documents for the customer. We complete our KYC, we get to know who the customer is, and then we go do the work from them by pulling from data sources. Right, so you're not asking them to jump through all these hoops to prove themselves worthy to be your customer. You're going to them and saying, we know what enough that we need to know about you to engage you in this way to give you value. Right, exactly. And, and this is how I got to know the Excel guys is because of these conversations is we started to realize, okay, well, if if simple isn't simple enough, how do we be proactive and do the work for them? And that's where we start to say, how do we get more insightful? How do we start to pull from more data sources uh, and pull those? But again, it all comes back down for me. I'm an infrastructure architecture guy. I'm a banker by association. Now, at this point, I guess I can kind of call myself a banker after all these years. But uh, I'm a, I'm a data and architecture guy, so you're I built. Com- you're a complete banker, Corey. All right, I'll take I'll take it. Uh, but I believe in building systems and workflows and architecture in a way that supports change and growth uh, iteratively, and I think that's very very important. You know, when when you look at the the fairly basic opportunities you've outlined. Um, I would say there are two other really clear opportunities right now. One is bringing on these younger, um, you know, customers, um, you know, that are a data, um, you know, driven or at least digitally, digitally native. Um, and then there is the issue of wealth transfer. We're starting to see this massive wealth transfer underway, you know, from one generation to the next. And if you're not tracking that data, you know, it, like, I, I hear a lot from community banks and credit unions that they don't really care about these younger millennials and Gen Zs because they've got all this incredible, you know, wealth from, you know, the the boomers and the Gen X that is is there. So, you know, they, they're protected by that to some extent. But, um, but Lindsay, what's your thought in respect to the risk of those big deposits leaving? Yeah, well, I think that the, you know, we're seeing this deposit drain and competition for for deposits in the rate environment, almost masking the actual drain of, uh, you know, losing market share and customer acquisition. And I know everybody loves to quote Ron Shevlin's uh, Forbes article about, you know, the checking account wars and and the neobanks and the digital banks are winning. And, you know, we're, I, I have either, it's, it's equally thrilling and horrifying uh, for me at Stride Bank in a mid-sized community bank that has a bunch of fintech partnerships with like Chime and DoorDash and Lyft, because I've got a front seat to how good they are at what they do and how they are changing customer expectations for the rest of us. And, you know, kind of to one of Corey's points earlier, that, you know, community institutions especially have been asleep at the wheel with data. Um, nobody as long as nobody moved on it, then nobody had to, you know, because the the uh, competition was was a level playing field. But 
then the neobanks came in and they said, hey, we don't have, you know, a seven, or if we have this seven layer cake, we're not going to eat it one layer at a time. We're just going to take a sliver of it. We're just going to take this one customer segment and we're going to laser focus on them and we're going to show them what a fully integrated omni-channel uh, predictive analytics experience feels like and looks like. And then we're just going to spoil them rotten to where they don't even want to, like, like uh, Jim was talking about, they don't even want to really deal with banks and they don't even see banks as their primary financial relationship um, and right. they go and i know brett you're a big first principles guy and and they're going back to first principles they're they're uh shedding this idea of the legacy banking system and you're supposed to have a checking account you're supposed to do this they're going back to how do i move money i've got money i want to send it to you vice versa how do i move that and neobanks and and fintechs are stepping into that space and delivering really targeted experiences um, that blow us out of the water because you know the the community banks are coming from a space where we're trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. And uh, and so that that is where we have to compete uh, for the you know in terms of the wealth transfer is that you know that's a generational piece and and this these are not just digital natives um, and Gen Z and and the coming generation, the coming up generations, but um, you know, all they their their iPhone, they were the iPhone was here when they were born, um, and so their their worldview is entirely different than ours, and so we have to um, be prepared to meet them where they are in the digital world and in the digital space. And uh, and that requires a whole lot of paradigm shifting and, and talent management and systems and technology and all of that kind of stuff. And those are big investments that as you start to untangle them, you step on more and more. You find more Legos to step on, you know, as you as you go down the road. And uh, and it just, you know, if community banks and, and financial institutions are, are going to uh, continue to compete in that environment for those customers that the wealth will eventually transfer to, uh, yeah. we have to be persistent. Yeah, sure. So um, thank you, Lindsay, for, for jumping in there. Um, I do want to address Michael's, uh, Michael Goswick. He's come up he, here and, he, and, and this gets into the execution side of it. So maybe Becky, um, you know, you might want to jump in here or, or Vickers. Um, you know, we, when we're talking about moving to sort of a data first uh, approach or, or culture, you know, where do you start? Do you start you know, with data structure? Do you start with sort of the rails from the legacy system? Because the legacy system, you know, obviously is a limitation here. You know, where, you know, if, if someone's on this uh, webinar today and saying, look, I appreciate um, everything you're saying here, but I just don't know where to start from a technical aspect, what would be the answer? Becky, you want to you wanna kick us off? Absolutely. It starts with a question. And that is all you need to do to start. We tend to get all worked up about the technology and the data and the C word that I can't stand, which is can't, um, you know, why we can't. We just talked about, you know, there are some legacy core uh, database systems that don't give you access to everything. Um, you know, I don't have a data analyst, um, you know, on staff that I can use to look at all this data. I don't have my data in a data warehouse that's homogenized in a way that I can, you know, query it easily. None of that stuff matters. All you need to do is start with a question. Why am I losing 
more members. I'm from a credit union background. We call our customers members because yep. they're owners. So why am I losing members? So that can lead to the next question. Well, how many members am I losing, and and what it what is that? Mm -hmm. Is it is it just the fact that I'm at more closing accounts than are coming in, or what is that? Then you drill down further. Well, what does the do the people look like? What what do they have in common? Is it age? Is it you know where they work? Is it um, where they live? Okay, how long have they been a member of the credit union? So it starts with a question, and most of the time, all of us have enough data to start to answer those questions. So then, when you kind of to. They don't even need to. The reality is you have so many third-party partners, Excel, that that will help you. If if you have a one-person organization, nobody does, but if you had a one-person organization and you have those questions, there are so many third-party providers out there that will help you with those questions and deliver the answers to you in a fast, efficient, much lower cost process than was ever possible before. And you don't have to unwind. This is why the small banks are doing so amazing right now is because they don't have the, the core providers standing in their way. And the reason why they don't, they said, we are going to commit to finding the answer outside of the core provider. They're not getting rid of the core provider. They're running duplicates. They realize that lowest hanging but fruit. But it's because they're more sensitive, those changes Becky's talking about. Right? Yeah. They can see the members going out. They can see the, the fact they're not picking up the younger take uh, customers. Right. Whereas the bigger, the bigger, or the, the midsize and the regionals, as you're saying, they're like, well, we still had a pretty good year. Yeah, we might be not taking on. Uh, or it's um, going to go five layers to get somebody to take action. The reality right. is most these small organizations say, you know what, we'll engage with a provider that bids provides a better communication system, provides a better database system, provides a better, you know, a jet, a generation of new account system that will use our data and show us where our weaknesses are. Yeah, yeah. And Brett, I couldn't agree more with Becky and Jim here. Uh, we see at a lot of large banks also, right? We used to hear about these data lake projects which would go on for years and then still they would not be where they wanted to be. Right? And I think it's very important to understand what are the biggest problems that you are trying to solve and then I think the path becomes way more easier. Then you can understand where the data is, what will processing needs to happen, how it would fit into your operation processes. And that's a better way to solve the problem rather than trying to get everything together because that endpoint will never be reached. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, one of the, um, because one of the areas that you and your team are frequently asked to help with is the area of fraud management. So, um, you know, how is a, a good sort of data architecture really important from the fraud perspective? No, I think that's a, that's a great question, Brett. And uh, fraud is increasing overall, right? Especially in the pandemic, we saw a big increase in that. Uh, it is uh, still um, hasn't come down that drastically. And I think the challenge with fraud, and especially those of uh, you on the call who deal with fraud, it's always an ever-evolving field, right? New kind of uh, fraud patterns emerge, and then you have to go and, and start getting ready for it, I think. Uh, few things, I think, which we have seen uh, working well uh, for our clients is, one, uh, keep an eye on what kind of patterns are emerging, right? Uh, so, for example, uh, when you look at it in the last few years, we are seeing account takeover fraud uh, has increased a lot, right? And then start creating sophisticated strategies for that. Uh, the second part here is uh, there are a ton of 
and Jim talked about right? there are a ton of third-party data sources actually available. I think the trick is how do you string them together? How do you go and start uh, creating these set of tools? And which of these you can actually, where you can bring in more automation to make decisions uh, versus this, for example, blocking certain transactions or stopping certain uh, kind of applications versus where you do need your people to go and take it, people to get back, right? So striking that balance between how much could be automated and how much uh, needs to be manual. And then how do we use more data sources to bring the needle more towards automation? Uh, I think that is uh, one key trick. The third part I will also add here is, uh, I think it's a very interesting world, right? It's a world of deep fakes today. <laughs> there are so many new things that are emerging and so are new thought patterns, right? Uh, but so are new technologies itself, right? So for example, yes. uh, when you look at check fraud, uh, it's an issue which is increasing overall. Uh, but we have seen very interesting results uh, looking at uh, new techniques like image analytics. Uh, to see their obvious patterns uh, where we can go and recognize that and then we can start uh, blocking these transactions so that has helped a lot uh, so basically looking at more data sources looking at more capabilities but the most important part is how do you orchestrate all of this together right so that it starts becoming much more seamless i think those are some of the ways we have seen uh, work very effectively for clients mm, when they look yeah, at competing yeah. fraud well sorry go ahead corey yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, when we talk about the topic of the webinar, right, we're talking about trying to find value as an institution, right? When you start to look like this growing, you know, increasing, you know, amount of fraud that's hitting us because we're trying to become digital native and we're just not that great at it as, a, as an industry at this point, right? It's not just mitigating the fraud, right? There's a tremendous amount of time and money spent in FTEs on the backside to try to mitigate this stuff and monitor this stuff and report and file and do all these things. These are easy wins, right? You want to talk about finding singular pro or pro processes or programs to try to create a project around to start to kick off your data capability. This is probably one of the first ones a bank should really be looking at. It doesn't really touch a lot of the other areas in a way that's impactful. And we could do something, right? And you start to create that muscle a little bit. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, you know, the the big topic, of course, that is highly correlated with this discussion on data is the emergence of uh, AI, generative AI, um, conversational AI in general. The impact of ChatGPT has been fairly clear on the market fairly quickly. You know, putting threads aside, it's the fastest growing, um, you know, e-commerce or, uh, you know, uh, web, web application uh, that's been that to, to 100 million users. Um, but, you know, the, the, the implications of artificial intelligence are being uh, felt around the globe with regulators having to respond to this. Uh, we're thinking about licensing and all of these things. But let's face it, one of the biggest questions around AI right now is the data access and the data that drives that. And so if you are going to go down the route of artificial intelligence-based banking support for your members or your customers, you're going to have to have a handle on this data, right? So um, maybe Jim, um, can you jump in initially on this? Is like when you when you are talking um, about AI uh, to these organizations, is it still seeing as something that's going to happen in the future, or are they you know are executives in the space and is is the research that you're doing and that Ron's doing, for example, is that telling you that there is a rush to embrace AI and that that might change things on the data front? Somewhere in between what you just said, you gave me the option of not doing it or are they in a rush? Um, they're right. doing something, but no, they're not in a rush. Um, right. The reality is I think 
people are starting to kick the can. There, again, you get into the whole situation of legacy leadership that gets, they're in a uh, risk avoidance mode still as they happen in their careers. You look at more modern digital banking systems, such as China, as you're well aware of, Brett, that's a risk management mentality. Smaller financial institutions now, and the biggest, are looking more at risk management than risk avoidance. That opens the door to a lot of opportunities, especially when you're talking about generative AI. You know, I had a, a great interview on uh, the Banking Transform podcast with Brian Romley, who you know very well, and everybody on Brian's the great, yeah. show today probably does. Brian said, you know, the future of generative AI is you're going to have an AI tool that's actually assigned to you. He's going to be your digital, he or she, it's going to be your digital answer box that continues to grow in intelligence over time so that if you have a question, it will not just answer the question, but it'll be deploying it and answering it in the context of previous questions and previous data. And so over time, you can say, you know, I, I often say my, my primary financial institution probably knows more about me than I even care to know, but they just don't use it. Well, generative AI is going to use it. It's going to build that engagement. It's going to make it so that, you know, it's kind of like the concierge of the hotel. This digital concierge is going to be able to say, based on everything we know about you from the outside and insider relationship, here's what we'd recommend for you. And they'll do it proactively. You know, we looked seven years ago at Bank of America and, and uh, their their voice-generated uh, banking system, and we thought, well, that's kind of cool, but not really necessary. Erica. Every right? financial yeah. institution would love to have the data of every one of those conversations that went on because they're so far ahead of the game now because of that tool that that basically Erica can, can now answer things in a generative AI sense over time. And then, you know... The financial institutions want to get there. They, they're they tentative because of some of the risk issues. You know, we only have to look at some of the emails we get from our financial institutions where the microtype is longer than the actual message that the financial institution is trying to send us. It's going to be done. I mean, you're not going to be able to avoid it. I mean, Ron Shevlin is already talking about the fact that it's no longer digital transformation. The whole idea of digital transformation is an old term. Yeah, it's yeah, that's really true. really deployment of AI. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, just even some of the data runs uncovered, you know, from pande the pandemic in terms of changing behavior, the fact that, what is it, eighty percent of new account opening is done digitally now. You know, um, yeah. that sort of stuff is is the the the. If you haven't made that transi transition already, you're going to be in strife. Because uh, what about on the generative AI side? How is that is that being used? I think that's, a, again, a very interesting topic, uh, Brett. Uh, as you can imagine, I think community banks are not going to be the first out of the gate to start using this, uh, but they are typically fast followers, right? Uh, the way we talk to clients, uh, Brett, we think there are three generations of uh, using generative AI. Uh, in our mind, the first generation actually is going to focus more on the efficiency side, right? So these are a lot of things which happen after you have dealt with the customer, a lot of things that you need to go and start looking at, uh, doing a lot of documentation which exists, so you have to ingest a lot of new documents. This is where the first application is going to be because this technology is new, right? There are a lot of uh, governance implications of that. So that's why you want to use it more on the back office side first. Uh, the second generation, uh, which we tell clients, is going to be when we can start using it to basically assist your frontline representatives, right? So think of it as a rep assist, staff assist, agent assist kind of capabilities. 
where it's human who is actually making the decisions, but the recommendations are coming in and Jim talked about, right? Looking at all the data, can they recommend that this might be something uh, which you need to talk to the customer about? And then the third generation is going to be where we actually let this uh, go and start talking to the customer directly. Uh, but I do think that that safely is at least, I would say 18 to 24 months away, because that would require a level of sophistication uh, and level of governance, which doesn't exist yet, right? A uh, lot of uh, community yeah. banks have started becoming more comfortable with say machine learning techniques, but Gen AI is a different ballgame altogether. And then the second part, which I think while there's a lot of dialogue around it, uh, which people also uh, miss sometimes is the cost implications of that. Right? Running these yeah. large language models is very, very expensive. Uh, you want to basically use it very selectively on areas which create maximum impact for you where the business but case I, is yeah, I, I'm uh, surprised that there hasn't been more of a community-based approach to that with the community banks coming together and the and particularly the credit unions coming together to share those those costs of building these large um, you know data models, because that's something that I think conceptually, especially for credit unions, because they don't feel like they're competitive in the same way banks think about um, that space. Um, and yet, you know, um, w there's a few exceptions to that, um, you know, such as uh, Alloy Labs and and Casasa and so forth. But it's fairly rare for yep. uh, these organisations to come together from an infrastructure perspective. But Corey, um, let's maybe jump into the design sensibilities because you are, you know, of of the players on the space here. You know, you're always thinking about these new design parameters, what you can do to 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 have a bit of an edge. Um, and when we talk about AI um, and it's it's it, the implications for customers, you know, the 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 most immediate, I think, broader implication for uh, the bank account itself is being able to have a bank account that is highly responsive to your needs as an individual um, customer, you know, whether that's as a SME or as a consumer, you know, um, that that it would be able to anticipate your needs for access to credit or, you know, how you should need to execute on a payment and be able to, that's the generative AI I see. It's not right. mid-journey and, and you know, and right. doing fake news stuff. It's, it's, the, it's the ability for your bank account to know based on um, behavioral understanding of, of your uh, responses to money situations and so forth, right. the geographical constraints, behavioral triggers and stuff to come in and say, oh, by the way, here's a solution to that. Yeah. Before yeah, you know it, by the way, Brett. Sorry? Yeah. Before you know it. Yeah, true. Well, that should be the point, right? Is it should be before we know it, right? It should be kind of that advisor to us. And, and, and I see it as a critical part of, of community banking in general. Uh, financial services as a whole as well, but uh, we have to start changing the way we have that, that conversation around being an advisor, right? And and that's kind of how we see the utilization of AI in the future to your point, right, Brady? I, I want to be able to tell someone, hey, look, if you're a small business, you know, banking with locality, I want you to be able to look in your bank account and almost be able to predict, you know, when you're going to need additional cash flow or to be able to articulate a proper budget as a business for the next year without putting a lot of effort into it. And so, yeah, a lot of the foundation, a lot of the systems we've put in place, a lot of the decisions we've made with partners that we selected at the beginning had nothing to do with what we already launched. It had everything to do with setting ourselves up to build into these things. And we talked to partners daily. I mean, this was actually the topic of conversation 
for about three hours yesterday. So like the, the panel knows I'm here in Nashville at an American Banker Conference uh, for small biz. And there was a number of us. It was, I was the only banker. There were several tech companies uh, in the conversation. And we were talking about how do we get this data? How do we put it into a, a form that is useful for the customer? And do we need it all centralized into a single platform? Do we need to go with one of the companies that can do that? Or do we already have the data needed to make that model for the customer on these separate systems that are already in here? We just need to put it together into a dashboard or a report or a statement or whatever it may be, or even better, maybe a phone call, maybe an email, maybe a text message. Uh, that can be generated, right? Without us having to manually do some of these things. Uh, we want to get into those those spaces. But again, it all starts for us in not just understanding how do we go do it, but understanding what we're doing it for. And so a lot of the things that we're, I guess, prefacing before we really push hard is we're sitting down and talking. We're focused on local businesses, right? So, so really small business. So from about a million dollar in revenue to about $50 million revenue today. And, you know, as we continue to grow in asset size, we'll take on larger businesses as well. But at, at the heart of what we're wanting to do is enable our local businesses to thrive, right? And so in order to do that, we don't want to make the assumption that we know best how to produce that for them. And so we're sitting down with specific key You want to be responsive to their needs, yeah. 100%. We want to sit down with specific industries you know, for us, it's attorney accounts, lawyer trusts type relationships. It's uh, property management companies. It's dental clinics. It's medical clinics. It's these really key areas in our markets that are huge industries that have a lot of complexity that we can solve very simply with some of these uh, capabilities. And so we're pushing on that. But to be honest, what we're looking with AI right now is is more again on the almost like on the data side where it's, it's more risk and compliance i think it's it's reviewing yeah. policies chris chris nichols talked about this uh i think like two years ago about using you know chat gpt or some sort of source like that and i know they use that now internally to just review policies and again it comes back to saving time and money that's huge right it's, if i don't have to spend you know hours trying to understand that my policy is compliant with new changes that's that's a big advantage. We can spend more time sitting down and talking to our customers yeah. or looking through the data or understanding what that next build is. But uh, I'm not going to sit here and say we, we have it locked down just yet. But you're trying. I tell you, man, I'm building it. Yeah. I'm doing it. I'm, right, I'm, good. It's going to be there. And we'll let, we'll let the market tell us if it was the right one. All right. So we're running out of time, guys. But Becky, I want to get your uh, final comment and then and Vikas, uh, leave you to um, give us a little bit more information about EXL before we go. So Becky, um, you know, AI in the credit union space. So um, I think that, that when you talk about AI um, and emerging technologies, um, so I'm a, a decentralized fan. And uh, I can't talk about emerging technologies without talking about DLT. Right. And I think that AI and DLT go hand in hand, especially as it relates to um, the unprecedented capability for fraud detection and uh, stopping bad actors um, from doing bad things. Because when it's all on chain, everything can be seen all the way from the very origin. There was a Wall Street Journal article today um, specifically about how terrorist organizations were using the cryptocurrency rails to move money around. And the amazing thing about that, while as scary as that might be, and most people go, well, you know, crypto is bad, right? Well, let's really look at what happened. 
what really happened is in a matter of minutes or hours, the good guys, the white hat guys, were able to see the flow of money from one place to right, another right, once right. they started looking. And, and, so, and theoretically roll back transactions and so forth, uh, right? Yes. So now let's put AI on that. And what did we just talk about earlier? How payments is going to be the focus of everybody in the future. That's why they want a bank account, right? To facilitate payments. Or otherwise, they'll use something that looks like a bank account because it facilitates payments. When in a Venmo account, Jim, you were mentioning that now that money is just sitting in a centralized organization that Venmo owns, right? So now we're back to custodial, um, you know, money. I don't own it. Anyway, so I think that, that we talked about leadership. We talked about getting started. You don't have to do it yourself. You can use a vendor who's an expert at these things, but it takes leadership eventually. And don't be afraid of emerging technologies. But that's awesome. what I got about all of this today. Fantastic. Well, um, I will ask uh, uh, Vikas to jump in here um, and uh, talk with us um, about EXL. Um, they've sponsored this uh, webinar, so it's a nice opportunity to hear from them about how they can help with these problems. Um, Vikas, uh, please take us through your value prop in the next few minutes. Thank you, Brett. So, team, we are a company which is focused on providing analytic solutions to banks and financial institutions here. Uh, we are a mid-sized company. Uh, have a decent uh, team members around around 7,000 of data scientists with us, and uh, we basically our clients love us. As you can see, in a lot of the surveys and a lot of NPS surveys that we do with clients, we primarily focus on two things. Uh, we can help you grow your top line, whether it is in terms of acquiring new members, uh, using both traditional and digital channels, whether doing more cross-sell or whether improving your customer experience, or we can help you improve your bottom line which means helping you basically create better fraud strategies, better credit strategies, or even helping you with regulatory compliance. Uh, so if you have an analytics need, please don't hesitate to reach back to us. Uh, the website is there at the bottom, www.efluservice.com. Fantastic. Well, perfect timing. So thank you all. Um, we will circulate the link to uh, this uh, webinar if you'd like to share it with uh, um, others that weren't able to attend today. Um, but we're certainly very grateful for EXL's support of the webinar. And I'm very grateful to all of the panelists who join us today. So please join me in um, you know, giving my thanks to Jim Maroos, Lindsay Ogan, Vika Sharma, Becky Reed, and Corey LeBlanc for uh, joining us on this webinar today. Thank you all. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank yeah, you, and, and you know, um, I will say I'm sure everyone as panelists on this are wel uh, 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 would welcome this. If you have some questions that we didn't get to offline, you know, feel free to ping them on LinkedIn or social and continue the conversation because this is uh, definitely a conversation we could do with uh, with having on an ongoing basis. But that's it for the webinar. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back with more goodness later. Stay in touch. <laughs>